how is that defining and what young people begin to understand about the social world, begin to understand about race and the politics of race and its um, history? What does it reveal to them about who they are or who it is thought that they are and that social positioning and that I don't know if we appreciate how long and how deep that continues to exist. Welcome to the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, your host, CEO and president of Search Institute, where our own research over the past 60 years has found relationships to be the roots that all young people need to grow and thrive. Welcome to season two of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, where we talk with renowned researchers and experts about the scientific insights that can help you build meaningful relationships with young people. I'm Ben Holberg, CEO of Search Institute, where our own research has found relationships to be the roots all young people need to grow and thrive. During our first season, we focused on the power of relationships that enable young people to shape their own lives and make an impact on their communities. This season, I'm pleased to share that we are featuring interviews conducted by educational leader and former Search Institute CEO, Kent Piquel. Throughout this season, we will explore how connections to resources, relationships, and social networks provide the key conditions that all young people need to thrive. On this episode of Rooted in Relationships, we talk with Dr. Andrea Hunter, a professor of human development and family studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Dr. Hunter is particularly interested in the relationships formed among Black and African-American families, and her work is shifting the paradigm in how social capital is perceived and the important role it plays in the development of relationships and well-being within the Black and African-American community. On this session of the Rooted in Relationships podcast, I am so excited to talk with Dr. Andrea Hunter, who's a professor in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. Dr. Hunter is a prolific scholar and writer in a range of areas, especially regarding the African-American family. I came across uh, one way that she described her work that I just loved. She said, I have sought to reveal everyday people living ordinary lives who do so with agency, with dignity, with great verve, and with the full range of harmony and chaos a human being can extract from life. My aim is to uncover the human experience as well as to impact publics. Dr. Hunter, thank you for joining us. It's really an honor. Uh, Thank you. It's a a pleasure to be here, and thank you for inviting me. So... (sighs) You have described your scholarly mission, one of them, because I know you have many, as, quote, reframing old questions and expanding interpretations of aspects of Black family life. What are some of the old questions and interpretations that you are working to reframe? Well, I should start by saying that I've had, since the beginning of my career, a very strong interest in the intellectual traditions that have defined the field and Black family studies, and also interested in the sociology of knowledge and how that's informed by the political discourse around race. So the field itself has been defined around very core questions beginning the early 20th century as defined by the work of E. Franklin Frazier and the Negro Family. 
So those questions centered around family functioning, around gender and gender relationships, around issues of the evolution of African-American family life and culture, and around how do we think about issues of class and uh, Black family life. At the core of this, in terms of the interpretation of Black life, was this kind of intersected focus on a kind of Black family pathology that had a stream around gender, around structure, that was to inform potentially problematic parenting and developmental outcomes. Now, Frazier had a much more complex view of this that he looked in a broad way, social historically, and brought together several new streams of scholarship. But how it came forward is probably best reflected in the kind of framing you see in the Monaghan Report, which was actually just kind of a summation of where the paradigm had been over the last 30 years prior to its publication in the mid-60s. So I've been meandering around those questions about how do we think about how African-American family life evolved on the American continent, what began to uh, constitute the nature of Black culture, how did this inform Black identity, what was its implications for parenting and functioning. And so all of those questions also have swirled around a kind of the politics of advancement, around sort of understanding racial stratification as kind of driven by a kind of cultural deficit. Now, to Frazier's credit, what he was trying to do is move the field beyond a kind of native, essentialized Black inferiority to kind of look at social historical influence on Black life through this broad kind of historical transition from the Middle Passage to enslavement to emancipation, to urban migration. And so he had that broad sweep. So I have a variety of ways that picked up those themes in my work. Yeah, thank you. It's really helpful to hear your work in that broader historical context of the scholarship that you have been building on. We mentioned the implications of all those factors for relationships, which is, of course, our focus on the podcast. To what extent has the relationships, especially between parenting adults and young people, but also between other adults in the family and children or or youth, been, it sounds like I know it's been an ongoing focus. Can you talk a little bit about the emphasis on relationships and some of the either conclusions or ongoing hypotheses you've been exploring through your work? Well, let me first talk about what I see as some of the insights from my work. And as I said, I've looked at families and development and relationships across historical contexts. I began looking at early 20th century Black families. And so an underlining finding or insight from this work is that children, youth, and families are agentic and that they're most often a part of a complex web of social relationships, the networks unfolding across multiple contexts and generations, which they themselves cultivate, accumulate, manage, and deploy. And so that, moreover, this agency and intentionality 
is not confined to white families or the middle class or the economically privileged. So as I began to look at a whole range of of questions, part of that is to be disruptive and subversive and ask different kinds of questions about Black family life. So instead of sort of centering around the issue of one versus two parent and isn't that problematic, I was interested in how people were living their lives. I was interested in that whole kind of range of parenting systems that may develop. I was interested in the diversity and fluidity of those relationships as they moved in and across household boundaries. And so I was very much interested in a whole new framing around that. So it wasn't just a question of the nuclear family or one or two parent. Is that related to poor and negative outcomes? And I also wanted to move away from sort of conversations about how people ought to live to look at how they are living and to understand the variety of developmental and family outcomes that could come from that kind of sort of that rich experience within families. And it was critical for me to push the field to try to ask those different questions. So if it's about the different kind of parenting roles that people may participate in, what does that look like? What does that look like across diverse contexts? How it is that people bring an agentic approach to their parenting? What is it that they're trying to achieve with that? How are they thinking about it? How is it informed by culture? Or even if it's early 20th century families, how do I understand the adaptive strategies that families brought to survival in the early 20th century and as they migrated not only urban north, but also urban south? And what did that look like within the different kind of demands of the early 20th century? And then also, what can I see in terms of continuities and patterns that may tell us something about aspect of Black culture that informs family life that transcends over time and that also allow people to adapt and then also get a framing for what that evolution in Black family life may look like or has looked like. And I would just add that my interest in the early Black family life across the 20th century actually began because I wanted to understand contemporary Black family life. What happened from the turn of the century to the 20th century to present? How were we asking questions about contemporary Black family life that was rooted in uh, paradigms about Black family functioning that were steeped in a sort of kind of narrative, but did not fully represent that mosaic of Black family life, how people survived. And what if we switched those questions? What if we asked them differently? So that's part of how I saw much of my early work. The positivity, the agency, the complexity that your research brings to our understanding of Black families is so pathbreaking. The The side of me that started my career as a teacher and administrator is just sort of, my head is screaming with, this is so different from how so many of our practitioners working with kids are viewing the family. How much of your 
work ha- has found expression in, in practice or programs? It's a hard question to ask any researcher because your scholarship is clearly changing paradigms. Is the research to practice question something that you've thought about or grappled with? Because I know as I was rereading several of your articles for this podcast, I was thinking I need to send these out to lots and lots of, lots and lots of principals and other people who should be thinking this way about families. You know, my work hasn't personally been translational in in that way, although it's always a part of, that's always a part of the work that that I'm doing. It's not just sort of a, you know, excavation of an intellectual tradition and how we reshape paradigms, but those paradigms live in the real world and policy and practice. And I don't know if I could digress a little bit to tell you a story. But when I was an undergraduate, I actually had planned to follow a clinical psych trajectory. I wanted to be a clinician. And for part of my senior thesis, I read the literature on African-American families. And I did not recognize people I knew and that I had observed that were a part of my life. And I was naive enough to think, I said, you know what? I need to go tell those stories. And I had a sense that those stories, those narratives were critically important to the social policy that was being framed around race that had an impact on families as well as what happened in the classroom or in the criminal justice system. And so I saw myself as kind of bringing those stories forward. I certainly can see, as I look at the literature, a whole look at the literature and also look at the emergence of things like developmentally appropriate practice for the ways in which people are more considerate of family diversity, trying to develop policies that bring that. And I certainly can see those kind of rippling effects. And of course, this is a part of kind of a larger kind of shift in the way that we think about American family life. So I'm hopeful that, you know, I participated through my work and part of those sort of rippling uh, effects out in practice and in social policy. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And it's a question you probably get from someone who works at an applied research nonprofit is the question about practice. But I will tell you, we have referenced your work and Search Institute's work on families. And we've I'm excited to say just received funding to begin a new intensive investigation of the degree to which our work on developmental relationships is culturally responsive and rooted in families in particular of color. And so we're on the beginning of a, a deeper journey in this space, and we will be using your work as a as a guidepost on the way. In addition to your research in journals and elsewhere, you also have a wonderful uh, podcast of your own. This is our first attempt at one at Search Institute, but A Colored Girl Speaks. um, And I really enjoyed listening to several of those episodes. There was one, Going Home to Where I've Been, where you write about finding a a photograph and the belongings of your Aunt Fanny that included a a group of young boys was in the picture. And I I I was taken by... Well, I was thinking about the whole essay, but in the essay, you made a comment about these these young boys. I think they were like five or six, if I remember. So, so young young boys, and you said this about them. You said, "quote For them, race is paramount, but inconsequential, at least in this moment. But this will not be true for long." Can you just expand on that a little bit? I was taken by race was paramount, but inconsequential. I loved that duality in that statement. Mm-hmm. 
I meant that, and particularly in that context, because we're still living in a, you know, I grew up in a black enclave, small segregated town. And in that, in that moment, they are embraced by that space and that neighborhood and those community relationships. And actually, they're sitting on a court that the community had raised money to pave and to put up a basketball court. And my Aunt Fanny was one of the leaders of it. So it was striking in a number of ways. But at the same time that they're situated in this space of acceptance, of warmth, and they're embedded in that, race is paramount because they're sitting at a Negro elementary school with limited um, resources in a community that's still feeling the effects of Jim Crow. But at the same time, in that space, in that moment, is inconsequential. But as they move beyond those spaces into the world, it will define their lives, their health, their well-being, their mortality, And so I just kind of think about that kind of juxtaposition and what becomes of them from that space of home and comfort and shelter. I'm glad I asked about that because, and I I really do hope people will will tune tune in and listen to several when I assume the essays that you you read are mostly written out or otherwise you are the most fluid speaker ever off the top of your head. But it's really... It's really poetry-like in that you don't actually provide all of the details. Like the, like what you just explained filled in a lot of the gaps for me about the wonderful discussion of the photograph that you have. What motivated you to start the podcast? What was the inciting event? <laughs> I'm going to answer this in two ways. When I entered graduate school to embark on this, quest and this mission to write write my folks in. I came with what I call a rich indigenous theory or abstract thought about social relationships, about the living. I carried that with me to Cornell University and nothing there reflected what I had come to know of the world. And so most of my graduate education and my professional life has been working in that place of tension. As I looked over the course of my career working in that place of tension and working in a way that in so many ways was subversive, you know, so I'm trying to transform and disrupt and provide another kind of language. And by the time I got to the middle of my career, I felt that I need to reconcile my voice and myself and to tell stories in another kind of way because I was working through those academic conventions and I needed to heal myself as a scholar and as a storyteller because as I often tell my graduate students, social sciences are nothing but storytellers. And so I came out of that very strong oral tradition and so I wanted to talk about what it meant to exist in the spaces that I have to traverse being colored Negro and Black and African-American and what that has meant as that has intersected with history and place. And so I just needed 
to find the space to be able to to write that. And this is not even a voice I knew I had. Hmm. But it's precisely all the things I do in my own scholarship. It's precisely what I was trying to reveal all those all those years. It's all of those questions. So so it's just a reconciliation of all of that for me in that writing. And it's deeply personal. I could tell. Yeah. It's it's really wonderful. That as I listened to you, it reminded me one of the other papers that of yours that I've read and appreciated was um past us prologue, how history becomes psychologically present. And it it seemed as I was listening to your podcast that history is very psychologically present for you as you're writing, including about your own your own youth and the intersect the intersection of sort of the events of the day and all of our work at Search Institute is focused on kids and on youth development and on how things are evolving. Yeah, and and it is for all of us. And I I hope one of the things that comes through that we often don't think about is that Children are living in history and in place, and that they are also, just as I did when I was four, five, six, seven, they're interpreting a historical moment around race. So if you think about the moment where we are now, how is that defining and what young people begin to understand about the social world, begin to understand about race and the politics of race and its um, history, what does it reveal to them about who they are or who it is thought that they are and that social positioning and that I don't know if we appreciate how long and how deep that continues to exist in children's lives particularly if you're a part of a mar- marginalized and oppressed group, that you have to grapple with reconciling all the things that you learn about yourself as wonderful and beginning to understand also the space of denigration and less value and making sense of that. I appreciate that, especially as I'm sitting here in Minneapolis where we just had Derek Chauvin convicted for the murder of George Floyd. If you were giving advice, and you can pick whether you want to answer this question for a parent or a teacher or just adults in general, how would you be urging adults to help young people, especially as you just said, young people growing up in marginalized communities, African-American young people in particular, how can adults help them make meaning of a moment like this? And I just want to say, I know there's no simple answer to that question, but are there some themes from either your your research or your personal life that come to mind? Yes, I, I think, of course, there's a whole literature on racial socialization and African-American and other ethnic groups tackle this in different ways. But I would say to begin to allow children to excavate those stories and to be able to have conversations about its meaning and how to make sense of that. And, you know, I grew up against a, you know, a backdrop where there's kind of a running text. My parents were quite involved in an activist. And so I had a kind of broad framing, but I didn't necessarily talk about that. Of course, that was another time. But to kind of, you know, to excavate that, to have them share that story and that bombardment of imagery, and that includes dealing with the fear, the vulnerability, the grief, and in that place, also helping them find hope and faith. And 
Another reason why I did this podcast is part of the conversation I was hearing among college students. And I felt that in many ways they were they were standing on that their own feet and not understanding who and what was behind them and the legacy that we had given them so they can move forward with this struggle and that there were somehow there was a disconnect between that. So that's also part of what needs to happen, that parents have to be willing to talk about what is deeply painful for them and what got them through and giving, again, a language and a text for it, what children are experiencing. And I think we need to do it as a community and we need to do it across not only across generations, as I because there are stories that grandparents could bring forward, but we need to do it across communities because we're all part of this American story around race and we need to have that collective conversation if we are to be healed and if we are to be redeemed. Just to sort of share a little personal side of this, my wife, Tanya, who was African-American, she passed away when my kids were young. So I have raised an African-American daughter and two biracial kids, and my two biracial kids identify as black. And last summer here in Minneapolis, as the protests were underway with George Floyd, we've always been a family that talked about things. And I will just say, as a white father, in particular, my son, Adam, he couldn't talk to me last summer about those issues. And it was, I mean, he's a very verbal, like now college student off. And like in any adolescent, he had had times when he didn't think I knew up from down. and But we've always had dialogue. And I just realized last summer, I just, I couldn't go there. I couldn't. And I never said to him, well, is it because I'm white? <laughs> I think that's probably part of it. And he knew that I was listening. And I just, I, I had to just kind of, and it sort of, it was like a touching a hot stove, the anger. And so I just had to kind of be quiet about it. And we've never really opened the door a lot about that. But he's had the experiences where the police come when he's playing basketball with his friends and all those kinds of things. Nothing that, you know, has has thankfully merged into being exposed to violence around police. But it was a striking experience for me as a parent and obviously something as a white guy I've never experienced. But I saw it through the lens of my kids in general and my son in particular. And I would just say, you know, there's a there's a, a you know a developmental arc to that in terms of the feelings of risk and vulnerability and what's happening in the real world and what they need to interpret and manage at different points of their early development in youth and, and as they become emergent adults where you get this kind of full-blown sort of understanding of that that vulnerability and risk and and one of my projects that I did on African-American, it was about manhood and masculinity. And one of the things in this focus group, lots of things emerged, and it was a broader study about the social constructions of manhood and masculinity. But we end up writing about something. We wrote about that, but we wrote about a story that they wanted to tell us. It wasn't the story we sought. It was the story that they gave us. And one of the things that they talked about, and these were young men between 15 and 18, is they talked about the fear, managing the fear, and how they did that and who, speaking of relationships, what did they realize? Some of it was spiritual and religious, some had to do with their relationships, but that sort of constant 
underlining fear. And I remember one of the young men said to me, you know, everybody on my middle school basketball team is dead except for me. He says, I'm afraid all the time. I can't go to the movies. And I'm living in this place and I'm trying to move beyond it. So that kind of, I just don't think we think about that. I mean, we have a colleague here um, who's doing some really incredible um, work in this area, Jocelyn Smithley, but that sense of vulnerability, of fear, of limited life expectancy, and how do you manage that as an emergent adult? Right. One would hope <laughs> there are relationships somewhere as part of the equation, but I there are necessary but not sufficient for addressing that that kind of constant fear that you're referring to. And if I could just say one more thing about that, one of the things that we saw with that was that, you know, one of the men, a young men said something like, you know, manhood, it's like a puzzle. You, you got to educate yourself. And he wasn't talking about school lessons. And so they were going out to different people, men, women, they were equally as likely to do that. They sort of observed and studied. I mean, it was like a project, and I thought about it as sort of studying on manhood. So they were cultivating relationships and connecting with with, uh, people, and this particular group grew up with not fathers in their lives because they were incarcerated primarily, and many of them were just coming after long sentences as one young man, one man said, young man said, you know, he left as a child. When I was a child, I'm a young man now. And so struggling with that. But in that space, they were like in, with intentionality and with agency seeking out these whole web of relationships as they studied on this proposition called manhood, you know, and coming of age. And one of the young men says, you know, I know the type of man that I want to be. I want to be the type of man who's there for people who need me. I want to have a wife. I want to have a family. I want to have a job. I want to have a good job. He says, but you don't always grow up to be the man you want to be. And so there was a lot of kind of kind of critical reflection on that positionality for them and what that meant as someone says, you know, we want the American dream, but they're building more prisons than they do houses for Black people. Mm. I th- if I understood you correctly, you said when you started that project that it wasn't that wasn't the story you you started out to to understand, but that's the one the boys, the young men, needed to tell you. What, if I got that right, what did you go into it thinking you were going to be examining, and how did the young people flip the switch and and focus it differently? Well, I went into it like a, a, a more of a cultural project. So, how do we un- how do we understand masculinity, manhood, these multiple dimensions of it? This is linked to some of these earlier questions uh, that I was talking about, and some of the hypotheses that black men had faulty kind of views of of a man manhood. Or in earlier times, they talked about it as being emasculated or problematic manhood or hyper masculine manhood. And so I was there to kind of understand masculine manhood as a cultural pro- project. I had done this in earlier years with adult men and, and saw this really kind of multidimensional way of thinking about manhood and masculinity that was quite expansive, something that wasn't talked about in the literature. So I was interested in seeing, well, where were young men? And what about, you know, we're all doing all this talking about urban Black youth, right? 
And what I saw was very similar richness. And another thing that I saw was this is something that is kind of an Afrocentric kind of epistemology and a ways of making knowledge claims is that to talk about something that's abstract, that folks use stories and they lived experience to articulate an abstract point or a theoretical point. And so they couldn't talk to me about what they thought manhood was. They had to tell me the story of their lives. And at that point, there was a convergence of young men who are similar age, dealing with father loss, so they had to intertwine those stories. And we had to tell them because it was all bound up together. And so I thought it was a gift that they gave us and they entrusted us with it. And I thought it was important for us to bring that story forward. Yeah, well, thank you. That's a wonderful, flexible way to undertake this kind of this kind of research and follow the story where it where it goes. Another body of your work has been on what is often called social capital, those relationships in life. And usually when we think of social capital, a lot of people think of economists or sociologists, and the, they're the relationships that help you maybe get into college or get a job or something like that. Your work has really examined and I think called for a, a different conception of, of social capital. In particular, there's a paper you and some colleagues did in 2018 that was on social capital and parenting in African-American families. And if I'm remembering it right, you, you basically looked at mothers and you really found out that when, when we conceptualize social capital to in, include family relationships or kin and community relationships, there were benefits not only for the mothers, but also for their children. Could you talk a little bit about either... Either that study or correct my <laughs> mischaracterization of it if I did, but also just your thinking about social capital and its place, especially rooted in your research on Black families. Sure. Let me start with one of the impetus for writing there. It's twofold. One is linked to, as I said, those earlier, those earlier questions and what we haven't asked. But I was reading the social capital literature which, you know, exists and looks different in different places. And, you know, I kept coming across this sentiment that African-American families or people didn't really have social, oh, the social capital they had wasn't, it didn't buy, it, it wasn't particularly good. You didn't get any, it didn't, didn't accrue any dividends in it. That some of the agentic part of it that somehow was outside the possibility or the, cultural uh, realm of African-Americans. And I kept seeing the sort of sprinkle places and even in the international literature as they were reflecting on this for African-Americans. So I decided with this paper, I wanted to do a Tessa Coleman's theory. And I also wanted to, in this mixed method study, to be able to hear mothers' voices as they talk through these sort of social relational processes that are theorized by um, Coleman in their own voice. Now, obviously, they don't use the word social capital and intergenerational closure, but that sense of agency and the way in which they thought about and cultivated relationships, what they thought they meant. And it also mapped on very well to what we found in the quantitative part of the study, which is that these relationships do different kinds of things. So, for example, for the kin-based kinship, fictive kin, that was really important and had an impact on the ways in which mothers 
and children communicated around friends, around life lessons, and then that was connected to self-efficacy. And what we were looking at there was children's belief that they could sort of activate social capital, be it parents or teachers or community workers or other kinfolk. And then we also look at that community-based social capital. So both school and community, and what we saw there was that parents who were engaged in that way were also more engaged in community organizations, church and other social organizations. And then when parents were more engaged, they talked to other parents more about parenting, about their ideas, what kind of advice. And then that was also linked to children's self-efficacy in terms of them being able to activate those relationships. So with this work, I thought it was really important again to sort of disrupt and reframe and also to be able to look at these processes in a different place, the South, which had a diversified economy and a very rich and diverse Black community. And so you get to see how these multiple relationships are playing out and then how they're also having an impact on children's social competencies and development. And so I was getting to the field very much in the way that Frank Furstenberg challenged the field to sort of bring discussions around kinship and social capital together. So how are people developing this? How does it accumulate? How is it deployed across family members? And so then you start thinking about these complexities of relationships. How are these complexities of relationships associated with with different outcomes? And so that was part of what my interest was, you know, kind of following Furstenberg's challenge to the social capital literature and also to the literature and kinship. Yeah, I loved that the one of the variables that you looked at in that study was the the young person's ability to access and and expand their own social capital. That one of the challenges of our work at Search Institute on developmental relationships is I think we I think we're making a useful contribution because we're very focused on what does the adult do, but I think we're increasingly realizing that we're we only have half the equation <laughs> and that there's what the young person does and then of course there's not just the young person's competencies that are hopefully developed through relationship, but it's also expanding their circle of relationships. But uh, you looked at that in a really rigorous way in a almost mind-numbingly complex context in that particular study. I was also going to say that we should also challenge the way in which we think about bonding and bridging in the sense that bonding relationships can be mobilized to bridge children to more resources. You can see in the context of African-American churches where there's a diversity of social class and so a diversity social class, but a kind of range of kind of social capital. So they may have scouting, they got the praise dancers, and they have the programs in the summer. So despite the fact that you may have, you know, they're bounded in their shared belief, you have a range of access that the church can bring and has brought in African-American communities. So for example, if you go back to uh, my Aunt Fanny and the members of the community, 
if you haven't re- listened to Mayday Queen, do. But I did. Mayday Queen. Oh, you did. Mm-hmm. So that's an example of where you have a community, which was largely working class, poor farm laborers, who got together and said, we want to have a kindergarten. And none of the other schools had. It hadn't. It wasn't part of the public school system, and they did that for three years based on the labor of domestics, churches, and farm laborers to provide early education. They hired the teachers. We had graduations. And so this is another way of thinking about how this range of relationships and all of them that proliferate through the kind of a church and all the ways they can also shore up Mothers, young mothers who are looking for support and for help, and they're looking for models. What kind of parent do they want to be? What do they want for their children? And so African-American parents tend to be very observant about how people hold in, how they're holding values in their home, how they're raising children, and then are very intentional about developing those relationships, not only because it's consistent for their social engagement goals for their children, but also how they can grow and be supported as parents. Fascinating. One of the questions I've asked a number of our guests on this podcast that I definitely want to ask you, based both on your current research and your understanding of, of, of history, your ongoing studies of history, as we hopefully, by the time this podcast starts to, to whether when they're released, either over the summer or in the fall of 2021, we hopefully will be further emerging from this, this pandemic. As we do, what do you think we've learned that we shouldn't forget, if anything? You know, that's a question I'm asking myself right now in a lot of different ways. What I hope we learned in the stillness of that moment when we saw the horror of George Floyd's death that we are deeply connected in our shared humanity. I hope that what we take going forward is the sense of urgency and the belief that we can make things right. Or as the old folks say, <laughs> used to say, make what was crooked made straight. I hope that we learn from this moment that we are also part of a global community and that those connections, there's no such thing as isolationism as we have learned and that we are connected across time, across space, and that we begin to be able to see what the living through that can bring us as a nation and as a a human community. That's what I'm prayerful about, that the pain will not be for naught, that the pain will be a path towards another point of light for us. That's what I'm hopeful about and prayerful about. Well, I can't think of a better place to conclude this wonderful conversation with an observation like that. It is like your research, grounded in some very difficult, often brutal realities, but infused with hope. 
And so I really want to thank you for taking the time to join us for the podcast. Uh, we will continue reading and following your, your scholarship and uh, just want to thank you for really investing your career in looking at subjects, but in particular the subject of the well-being of the Black family in a way that has changed the paradigm and uh, to the benefit of all of us. Well, thank you so much for this opportunity to share my work and also to reflect and be a part of this ongoing mission in this work to, to improve lives. Thank you so much. That was Kent Pickell interviewing Dr. Andrea Hunter, Professor of Human Development and Family Studies at the University of North Carolina at Greensboro. I'm Ben Holtberg, CEO of Search Institute. I want to thank you for listening and ask that you review Rooted in Relationships wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back in two weeks with our next and final episode of Rooted in Relationships. The Rooted in Relationships podcast is made possible by grants from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. The opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the John Templeton Foundation. For more resources on how to build and strengthen developmental relationships with young people, visit the Resources Hub on our website at searchinstitute.org. If you have the chance, we'd love it if you could review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews are one of the best ways for others to find out about the show. On behalf of everyone at Search Institute, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.